All right. Have you ever thought about how thankful you and I should be that God does not show us the future? I mean, if you think about this, you think, you think, think about this. I am totally convinced that one of God's greatest blessings is the fact that he doesn't allow us to see into the future. Because just think about it. Think, if you could see into the future, think of how much, how many things you would have to worry about. Think about the anxiety that would settle in knowing that you were going to face all sorts of things. For example, for example, my wife, last week, she had the opportunity to go with her mom to Orlando, Florida. She went to a, uh, a conference, a women's leadership conference uh, called If, If, If Lead, If Equip, If Something or Other, where, where they were. And so she left me alone with all five of our kids. See, I'm convinced that if she could see into the future, she would not have felt comfortable leaving me alone with all of those kids. In fact, I've got a picture to show just exactly what happened. Um, let me interpret this picture for you. I told my wife, I promise I'm not going to sit and watch Netflix all week. And uh, I didn't. So you've got my youngest son eating Cool Whip. You've got my daughter taking uh, 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 swimming lessons in the sink. My, my son took a mud bath. Uh, my other son is playing baseball uh, with glasses. And uh, my oldest son realizes something's wrong. So he's asking for, for help. See, do you really think my wife would have left if she could see the future and knew that this was what was going to happen? Okay, that's a little bit of a joke. I did stage that picture. That picture was all staged, I promise. Maybe. At least that's what I'm telling you. All right. But seriously, think about this, though. Think about this idea that it's God's grace that we don't know what the future holds. Because can you imagine if we understood what was going to come in front of us, that it would worry the, the, the crud out of us. We would have so much anxiety. I mean, anybody, anybody in here experienced a surprise pregnancy? Don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> that would be awkward. Yes, but, but a surprise pregnancy. If you didn't know that was coming, that's going to add all sorts of anxiety if you knew that was coming. Think about this. Some parents I know are, are brokenhearted because their children are not walking with God. There are some people who are sorrowful because death has taken, has taken someone close to them. There are some people who are struggling Emotionally, because of the health problems that they are dealing with. So just do this. Think about the last five years of your life. Think about the last five years of your life, the things that have happened. Aren't you glad that you didn't know in advance of all those things that were going to happen? Because if you knew these things were going to happen, how much anxiety, how much, how much stress would you have over that? See, it's a good thing that God doesn't show us what tomorrow holds because otherwise we would all be on Prozac and, and that's just the way we would get through life because of the anxiety that we would take. So today, we're going to be in week three of our sermon series uh, called Pursuing God's Heart. Uh, a series looking at the life of David. And last week we saw, we saw David, he exhibited a heart of courage. We saw David as he took courage and he went and fought against Goliath with just a sling and a stone. But you know, again, I think how gracious 
of God only to let David live one day at a time. Because if, if David knew that even though, even though David had proved himself faithful, even though David was faithful to God, even though David was faithful to fight Goliath, even though David had proved himself time again, God is going to lead David into one of the lowest seasons of depression and despair that he could ever imagine. See, if David knew all that God was going to take him through, I'm not sure he would have survived the anxiety of it all. So today, today's message I've titled Raging Sauls and Faithful Friends. And we're going to look through uh, three chapters, 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20. Uh, it's actually a total of 96 verses. And since we're covering such a long passage of Scripture, we're going to kind of jump around between these chapters. And so if you have a Bible, if you want to just turn to uh, 1 Samuel 18, we'll be right around there. If you need a Bible, just uh, slip your hand up. We've got a couple. Uh, we've got an usher in the back who's uh, uh, Jim Herring. We'd love to come and bring a Bible up to you. Um, We'll be jumping around these, these verses. One of the things that we're going to see as we study through this passage is we're going to see three main storylines that run across these three chapters. The first storyline is we're going to see David's success. And then we're going to see Saul's uh, opposition. And finally, we're going to see Jonathan's friendship. So with that, before we jump in, I'm going to ask you to uh, just join me in prayer. God, we are just thankful for the opportunity to open up your word. God, we're thankful that uh, we aren't just coming to hear a pastor's opinion, but God, we're hearing your word be taught. Your holy and precious word that you've given to us so we can know you. So God, I pray that you would allow our hearts to be open to your word today. God, I pray as we hear your word that God, our hearts would be open and we would receive what you have for us. God, you know what our week look like. You know the weights that we carry. You know the souls that we face. So, God, I pray that your grace would be upon us. I pray, God, that you would meet us here. God, I pray that you would just allow your presence to fill this place, that we would feel your presence around us and in our hearts. God, we love you. We praise you and we ask your blessing in our time together. In your name, amen. So we're going to start and just kind of see what David's success looked like. Now, we saw, we saw last week, 1 Samuel chapter 17, we saw David fighting Goliath, and there was this great victory. David, who's just this teenage boy, he goes up to fight Goliath, who's nine foot nine, and got this, this huge armor on. And David walks into this battle with nothing but a sling and a stone. And, and God gives him the courage he needs and, and, and gives him the victory over Goliath. And it was a, a great success, for, a great victory for David. And this miraculous victory, it gave, it gave a, a shot of confidence throughout the entire army of Israel. Because you've got to imagine these soldiers, they've been facing uh, this Goliath and these Philistines day after day after day. And they've heard this giant's taunts. And, and the, the, the soldiers are discouraged. And so David's victory would have been like a shot of adrenaline. They would have had a little bit of passion and excitement that they haven't had in a while. And as, as, as a result, David gained instant popularity. He became a national hero because he went and fought against Goliath. The people began to sing his praises. Saul, who's the king at the time, he even made good on his promise and he made David a rich man. 
And so at this point, after defeating Goliath, Saul was said, you know what, David, you're so successful. I'm not going to let you go back home to your dad's land. You're not going to go back and be a shepherd. You're going to stay in the king's palace now. You're going to become a part of my court. So 1 Samuel 18 verse 5 says that Saul set David over the men of war. David was successful in everything he did. In fact, as we read through 1 Samuel 18, four different times, four different times it says that David was successful, just like this verse. He was successful in everything he did, or that he was wise in his decisions. So here's David. Here's David. He is a young man. He's probably just a teenager, maybe a young adult. He's a young man, and he's in charge of soldiers. He's earned a permanent spot in the king's court. The, 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 the people of the kingdom, the people of Israel, they have fallen in love with this kid. And so you match his, his, his considerable skills. You match his skills with his dependence on God. And it appears that everything that he does, anything he touches, is going to prosper and, and be blessed by God. Yet in the midst of all the success... In the midst of David trying to be faithful with what God has done, we're going to find opposition coming from a man named Saul, who's the king. So this is what 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 6, says. And as they were coming home, this is David and Saul. When, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out for, of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. And they sang, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. And, they, and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands. And to me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. You see, David's success his acceptance from the people of Israel it had made Saul extremely angry. And it began with this song that was sung by the women as they returned from the battlefront. Now, undoubtedly, when you look at this song, this song is praising both David and Saul. The song is saying, hey, we've got these two great leaders. Saul, you've killed thousands and David has killed tens of thousands. And it's praising both of them. But this song wasn't received by Saul, because all Saul could hear is somebody was better than me. And so this song began to penetrate the marrow of his bones. He couldn't handle the comparison being made between David, the teenage boy, and Saul, who's supposed to be the king. And notice what Saul complained about in verse 8. He said, what more can he have but the kingdom why is it that when we begin to compare ourselves to those around us, when we begin to look on envy, we think, you know what? The whole thing is shot. I mean, this song, David has, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. And immediately Saul concludes, he wants my kingdom. He's going to have my kingdom as well. I'm toast because of a song praising the two of them. So Saul's jealousy of David. It's going to take center stage in Saul's life. And we're going to see Saul's anger erupt towards David multiple times throughout this passage. In fact, in the three chapters we're looking at today, we're going to see six different murderous attempts that Saul has to try to murder David. 
The first one is in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Just a few, few verses later, David, uh, the, 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 excuse me, the day after the crowd sang the praises of Saul and David, Saul is overcome with anger. He's overcome with jealousy over David. He's overcome with an evil spirit. And while David is there trying to play his harp, trying to soothe Saul, Saul takes a spear and throws it at David and tries to, to, to pin him to the wall. This is what verse 11 says. Saul hurled the spear for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. That's murder attempt number one. The second attempt, a few verses later, in verse 17 Starting in verse 17, Saul remembers, hey, one of the things I promised to whoever killed Goliath was I promised my daughter's hand in marriage. They can marry a princess. And so Saul was supposed to give his oldest daughter, but being Saul, he decides to give his oldest daughter to someone else in marriage. And, and then finds out that one of Saul's younger daughters named Michael, she's got the hots for David. And so Saul says, hey, this is going to work out well. And so Saul says, here, here, David, you want to, you, I'm going to give you what I promised to you. And I'm going to give you the opportunity to, to become the king or to, to, to marry my daughter. And so, and so Saul says, if you'd like to be, um, become the king's son-in-law, and David responds with humility. He says, you know what? I, uh, I would love to become the king's son. I, I have no reason to. I, I'm a poor man. I have no reputation. And so this is what Saul does. Saul says, well, there's a little bit of dowry, a little bit of a dowry. If you're going to marry my daughter, this is what it's going to take for you to marry her. So he says in verse 25, thus you shall say, David, or excuse me, Saul speaking to some, some of the soldiers. He says, thus you shall say to David, the king desires no bride price except 100 foreskins of the Philistines that he might be avenged of the king's enemies. And here's the key. It says, now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Now, if you don't know what a foreskin is, you know what? You can ask somebody else after service. We're not going to quite get into that. Let's just say a foreskin was proof of, of the soldier's death, of the Philistine's death. And so Saul has this idea. Hey, David, he wants to marry my daughter. And here's what I'm going to do. If you're going to marry my daughter before you do that, you're going to go and kill 100 Philistines. Because he thinks there's no way David can do this. There's no way David can be victorious over 100 of our enemies. But David, humble, obedient David, says in verse 26, when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. And before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men, and he killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave his daughter Michael for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. What David meant to try and, and hurt, or what Saul meant to try and hurt David, David turned around, doubled it to show his faithfulness again. The third attempt on David's life in, in chapter 19 Saul is very bold. In verse 1, he says, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. I mean, we're not going to even try and, and, and come up with a clever way. Saul's like this. Every one of you, I want you to go and try and kill David. Jonathan was Saul's son, and it says that he delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. 
stay in a secret place and hide yourself. That was the third attempt. The fourth attempt, later in chapter 19, there's a war going on. And David led the army, and they fought the Philistines, and they had another great victory. And upon David's return, Saul is once again overcome with a harmful spirit and a, and a, and a rage within himself. And it says in verse 10 of chapter 19 that Saul sought to pin David again against the wall with a spear. But David eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. That's the fourth attempt. The fifth attempt, chapter 19, starting in verse 11. David is at home with his wife Saul. And Saul, David's not at home with his wife Saul. David is at home with his wife Michael. And uh, verse 11 of 19 says, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. Now, Michael, remember, is Saul's daughter. And what she's going to do is she's going to help David escape with his life. And she pulls kind of a Ferris Bueller type move. And she takes some pillows and puts it underneath the bed and puts the, the sheet over it to make it look like David is in bed and sick. And really, David is able to escape. And when Saul, the king, finds out that Michael, his daughter, has done this, that she has stood up for David, that she, uh, that, that he becomes angry with Michael. Saul becomes angry with Michael and says, what have you done? Why have you done this? And Michael becomes afraid. And she doesn't defend David. She makes up a lie. and She says, well, I did it because uh, David threatened to kill me if I didn't help him. Further adding to the rage and the anger that fuels David's or Saul's pursuit of David. And finally, the sixth attempt on David's life, chapter 20. Jonathan, who was Saul's son and who was also David's friend, he doesn't believe that his father really wants to kill David. And so David assures him that he does. And so they set up a little, uh, little ruse to see who was right. What's happening is they're getting ready to celebrate this, this three-day feast. Kind of think of Thanksgiving over a period of three days where everybody comes together and they have this big fancy meal over a period of three days. And so King Saul, typically when he's going to do this, he's going to have everybody in his king's court come to the table and eat these meals with him. And so this is a ruse. David, David and Jonathan come up with this idea and say, hey, Jonathan, you're going to go and hide. You're going to hide. You're not going to go to the Thanksgiving dinner like you're supposed to. And, and I'll watch my dad. If my dad becomes angry that you're not there, then I'll know that he is really seeking your life. And so uh, it plays out like that. On the first day of the feast, David isn't there and Saul just kind of, you know, blows it off. But on the second day, when David is not at the table, when they're eating Thanksgiving dinner and David is not there, Saul says, hey, where's, where's David at? And Jonathan tells his concocted story, and Saul loses it. It says in verse 30, that Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. <laughs> that's his son. That's, that's the mother of his kids. This is what he says. He says, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to, be your, to, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you know your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered his father, and he said, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at Jonathan to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. 
And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Six times, six times Saul tries to take David's life. Think about that old cartoon of that roadrunner and and the coyote. And and, and picture Saul being the the coyote and David being the roadrunner, always just a step ahead of Saul, able to save his life. Can you imagine, though, for David? Could you imagine the, the confusion that David would have had? I mean, what has he done wrong? Why, why has he kindled Saul's anger towards him? Why does Saul keep trying to kill him? He hasn't done anything wrong. He's, he's, he's never looked to hurt Saul, not the least bit. He's looked to help Saul, if anything. I mean, David, David brought musical healing to Saul's troubled soul. David brought hope to a fragile nation. Everything that David has been done, everything that he has done has been for the good of Saul and for the good of the nation of Israel. And he's done it modestly. He's done it humbly. He's done it in honesty and integrity. Yet despite all of that, Mount St. Saul keeps erupting, hurling spears and murderous plots at the life of David. And David, David asks a question to Jonathan. A question that you and I may ask ourselves many times. He says in chapter 20, verse 1, he says, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And Jonathan has no answer because no answer exists. There's no way to justify the rage and the anger of Saul. See, the thing I love about the story of David the thing I love about, about David's life is it's so real. His life isn't some far-fetched fairy tale that we have a hard time connecting with. His, his life is so real and so practical. Let me ask you, how many of you have ever experienced a raging Saul like this? A moment in your life where, where, where you're trying to do everything just like David. You're trying to do everything just right. You're trying your best to live for God. You are, are, are working hard. You're, you're keeping yourself out of trouble. You're, you're, even, you're, you're, you're even going to church and you're, you're reading your Bible and you're, you're praying to God. You're doing everything right. You're trying your best to live the way that you're supposed to live. Yet Saul keeps coming. You have troubles that keep being hurled at you despite the fact that you're trying to do everything just right. Your trouble comes in the form of horrible bosses whose undeserved anger makes it nearly impossible for you to go to work day after day. They come in the form of bills that you can't pay that you thought were cleared up long ago. They come in the form of parents who take nothing less than perfection and they belittle anything less than that. They come in the form of spouses who don't love us the way that we desperately need. They come in the form of failing health that threaten even your ability to get out of bed in the morning. Why is it that we can be so faithful to God and try so hard to do things right, yet it seems trouble is always lurking? It seems there's always a difficulty. There's always a hardship put in our path. Why the trouble? Why now? 
David has been so faithful to God. David has been so faithful to Israel. David has been so faithful to King Saul. So why this trouble? Why now? Why does the crap hit the fan when we're trying to do things the way we're supposed to? More importantly, how does God respond in times like this? I mean, we'd love, we'd love for, for God to nuke our enemy. We'd love for him to say, hey, this problem in front of you, this, this person that's causing you all this havoc, you're doing things right. And because you're doing things right, we'd love for God to come in and just, just, just nuke them and just destroy them, just, just beat them into shape. I mean, we'd love for God to do that. And there's times that God has done that. There's times when God comes in and we've seen Pharaoh, we've seen, we've seen Herod, we've seen God do that with them. I can't say how God is going to treat your difficulty, your Saul, your struggle. But I do know what God will do to you. I know what he did for David. He gave David a Jonathan. He gave David a Jonathan. God's, God's counter to Saul's cruelty is Jonathan's loyalty. See, God knew that David was going through a season that's going to be difficult. He knew he was going to be going through a season that would involve depression, that would involve uh, a feeling of everything being taken away from him. God knew that David was heading into this season. And so what God did is he provided him a Jonathan. He countered Saul's cruelty with Jonathan's loyalty. See, Jonathan, if anybody, Jonathan could have been jealous of Saul, jealous of David, just like Saul. I mean, Jonathan was the heir to the throne. He was the prince. He would become the next king. He had every right to despise David. But Jonathan didn't. He was gracious to David because God was working behind the scenes to provide David exactly what he needed in a tough time. God knew that David would need a close, intimate friend to walk with him through the difficulty that lay in front of him. You know, sometimes we go through and we have seasons of difficulty and we face hardship and our tendency is to begin to pull back. Our tendency is when we go through a hard time, we begin to pull back and say, you know what? I'm just going to internalize and keep this to myself. But David is going through a hard season and God realizes, hey, I'm not, I may not take away your difficult season. I may not take away your soul that's going to lurk after you and chase you down. But I will provide you a close, intimate friend to walk alongside you, to encourage you, to support you in that. And this is where, I don't know if any of you are going through that hard season, that difficulty. But this is the time not to pull back. This is the time to lean in. And say, man, I'm going through this hardship. I need to find my Jonathan. I need to find people around me who can walk alongside me and support me and encourage me as I face this hardship, as I face this difficulty. You know, I know that there are, let me just throw this out there as well. I know there are some people in here who think, you know, this church, this church, church is just not what I thought it was going to be. You know, I just don't get anything out of it. Let me just suggest to you that perhaps church isn't something you get something out of. Perhaps church is something that you're supposed to put into it. Well, you know, I just don't think, I don't think this church, I don't think church meets my needs. Listen, listen, 
If this is your complaint, let me suggest to you that perhaps, perhaps you need to go as a Jonathan and you need to find a David and you need to meet his need. Maybe that's why God has you here because you need to come and have the attitude of a Jonathan. Hey, the reason I am here is to find a David that I can meet their need, that I can be their encouragement, that I could be their support, that I could be their friend. So look what God does between David and Jonathan. Chapter 18, verse 1. It says, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, this is David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It's as if God took these two hearts, like two pieces of fabric, and he took a needle and he thread them together to where they were intimately and closely connected. These kinds of friends in life are completely rare. Oftentimes, we may only find one or two close, intimate friendships like this throughout our entire life. But listen, God knew exactly what David was going to need to get through a hard season. He knew he would need a Jonathan, a close friend. So there's three things. There's three things I want you to see that Jonathan provides for David. Because this is what close friends are supposed to do. There's three things that Jonathan gives to David. The first thing that Jonathan gives him is, is he gives him a, a promise. Jonathan gives David a promise. It says in verse 3, 18 verse 3. It says, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. A covenant is essentially a, a, a strong commitment, a strong promise of loyalty. This was a, this was a pact of loyalty. If you, if you think back to your elementary school days, this is where you spit on your hands and you shake on it. This is where you do your pinky promise. I promise. This is a covenant that was made between Jonathan and David. Hey, I got your back, bro. I will be with you through the thick and through the thin. I got your back. Jonathan's covenant to David was a genuine act of love and loyalty initiated out of a desire to help his friend. Secondly, Jonathan makes a sacrifice. He gives a sacrifice to David. And what he does is he takes his clothes and he gives them to David. It says says in verse 4 that Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan wanted to give David something that belonged to him that was meaningful to him. And so what he gives up is actually crazy because we've got to remember Jonathan is the heir to the throne. He's the next king. And what he does is he takes his, his purple robe, the robe that signified, hey, I'm the next king. I'm the real deal. I'm the next big thing. He takes his robe that has so much meaning for him and he gives that robe to David. He takes his armor. He takes even his sword and he gives that sword to David. He presents it all to David. These items of Jonathan's, they were things that defined him as the next king. And he sacrificially takes every one of those things and he gives it to David. It's almost as if the heir to the throne surrenders his throne to his friend. Because this is what friends do. Friends sacrifice. Friends are willing to give things up that mean something to them for the people that they love, the people they care about. Finally, Jonathan is going to give David his protection. We see this in in chapter 19 when Saul orders all of his servants as well as Jonathan to kill David. 
It says in verse 2, And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be in your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. David warns, excuse me, Jonathan warns David and, and says, go and hide. We also see this play out in chapter 20 during that big ordeal with the Thanksgiving feast. And, and Jonathan comes up with a way to help protect David. Helping David hide in the field and escape when it becomes evident that Saul wants to kill David. Jonathan, he, he shows his friendship. He proves his friendship by giving David three simple things. He gives him a promise, he gives him a sacrifice, and he gives him protection. Proverbs 18.24 says there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And David has found that friend in Jonathan. Isn't this what we all want? Don't we all want that kind of intimate, close friend who will have our back no matter what? A friend who protects you, who seeks nothing but your interests, who wants nothing else but your happiness. Don't we all want a, a friend who's a safe place where we can be who we really are without any pretense? We can, we can feel safe around the person. We don't have to weigh our thoughts. We don't have to be careful with our words. We don't have to think twice before we speak. They become a safe place where we can just be real. God gave that kind of a friend to David. And let me tell you what, God has given us one of those friends as well. David found his friend in the prince of Israel. But you can find that same friend in the king of kings, Jesus Christ. See, just as, just as Jonathan gave those three things to David, God has offered us those three same exact things. Jesus has given us a promise. He's promised in Matthew chapter 28. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What kind of better promise could we want than that? Than knowing that Jesus has promised he will be with, with us always, even to the end of the age. What about sacrifice? Jesus has given a sacrifice for you, but it's not a sacrifice just of clothes. It's his entire life. He's given his life to you. He sacrificed his life for you so you can be free from sin, so you can be free from bondage, so you can be free from addiction, so you can be free from Satan's reign in this world. Revelation chapter 3 says that Jesus' sacrifice, it offers to us white garments that we may be clothed, that the shame of our nakedness may not be revealed. He has made that sacrifice. He had offered us that robe of his life. And not only has he given us that, he also dons our dirty rags. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. So not only does he give us his life, he takes our life upon himself. He takes our dirty rags and he takes them upon himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us so we might become the righteousness of God. And just as Jonathan protected David, Jesus vows to protect you. It says in John chapter 10, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one no one will snatch them out of my hand. Did you hear that? No one will snatch you out of his hand. 
Romans chapter 8. He says, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation we will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. What kind of protection do you want than that? How many of you need to be reminded of this today? I don't know what you're facing I don't know what addiction is in your life. I don't know what debt you have, what, 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 what divorce is coming, what, what unemployment you're dealing with, what depression is in front of you. Listen, none of that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What more protection could we ever want to know that nothing in this world could separate us from him? See, I've said this before. I wish, I wish that I could promise every one of us in here. I wish I could promise that if every one of us were just faithful to God, if we just did our best and did everything right, that, that you wouldn't experience hardship, that you wouldn't suffer, that you wouldn't have difficulties in your life. That life would be easy peasy, lemon squeezy. I wish I could make you that promise. But that's not how life works. That's not how the Christian life plays out. But I can promise you this. I can promise that God will never leave you alone in your difficulty. God will never leave you alone to face those things on your own. Are you longing for that one true friend today? Are you longing for someone who will be knit to your soul? Who will be faithful to you regardless of what raging Saul is in front of you? You have one in Jesus Christ. And because you have one, you have a choice to make. Either you will focus on that raging Saul. You'll focus on that difficulty. You'll focus on that problem in front of you. Or you'll focus on your Jonathan. Either you ponder the bitterness of your situation. Or you ponder the kindness of your Savior. Sure, you can focus all you want on your difficulty. You can keep that in front of you and, and talk about how, how unfair it is. Talk about how it's not right. Talk about how you've been so faithful and you don't deserve this. And you deserve better than what you're facing right now. You can picture that person in your mind who keeps violating you. Who keeps hurting you. You can draw horns on their picture if you want. You can throw darts at that picture if you want. You can do whatever you want. You can, make a, you can memorize a list of everything you've lost because of this difficulty. You've lost time. You've lost your career. You've lost your marriage. You've lost your health. You can memorize that list of all that's been taken from you. And you can live a, a Saul-saturated life focused on the problems that are in front of you. Because that's really going to help you, isn't it? You'll feel so much better by becoming bitter and angry. Or maybe, just maybe, maybe we begin to stop focusing on our soul. Maybe begin, we begin to stop looking only at our problems and our difficulties. And maybe we begin to start seeing Jesus a little bit more. See, when you accept Jesus, when you focus on him, when you accept his promise, his sacrifice, his protection that he has offered to every one of us. You are no longer controlled by that difficulty. You're no, no, you're no longer controlled by that circumstance in front of you, by that hardship, 
by that trial, by that person. You are able to seek Christ rather than revenge. You can measure your choices against his mercy instead of the cruelty that you're experiencing. There becomes a freedom when we can begin to see Jesus more than our problem. When we can say, you know what? I don't know why I'm going through this, but I am so thankful I'm not alone because I have a friend in Jesus who will walk through the deepest, darkest, difficultest seasons with me. As we come to a close this morning, I want to just take this opportunity to turn our attention to earthly relationships and earthly friendships. See, God has designed us as people to live in community. What David experienced in Jonathan, we all long for that. We all long for that connection, for that person who will walk alongside us, who will be faithful to us, who will be loyal to us. We were designed this way. We were designed to be in community one with another. And we, as the church, we are supposed to be a source of encouragement and support to one another. That is what it is for. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. The Christian life is meant to be lived together. We're supposed to be David's seeking our Jonathan's in our midst. We're supposed to be Jonathan's seeking David's in our midst that we can support and encourage. This is why, this is why we make a, such a big deal about life groups here at Restoration Church. Because it's important. It's necessary. It's an opportunity for you to be connected. So that when you go through those hardships, when you face trials, you know you're not alone. You've got people who have your back. You've got people who will remain loyal to you. Who will help you out. Who encourage you and support you through the hard times. I know some of you say, well, I've, I've tried this before. I tried, you know, this group idea and, you know, it just, it, it just didn't fit. I, I, I just didn't fit in. Let me tell you what, some groups, some groups you don't gel with. Try a different one. We've got five, four or five groups. There's plenty of groups for you to try someone else. Try a different one. Because God doesn't shelter us from the hard times. What he does is he gives us Jonathan's to encourage and support us when we need it most. Restoration Church, this is what we need to be. A bunch of Davids and Jonathans saying, you know what? I'm going to walk alongside you. You've got some hardship in front of you. I'm with you. I'm with you. I know. I know there are some in here who are just dealing with a difficult season. A season where they're just not feeling it. They're just not feeling connected. They're just, they're just out there. Listen. Listen. We're behind you. We're in this together. We're in it together. So let's commit to each other. Let's commit to being Davids and Jonathans. If you're a David, be committed to the body. And seek the encouragement and the support from us right here. And listen, if you're a Jonathan, I hope you understand how important your role is. That we need Jonathans to come and walk alongside us when we're struggling. Amen? Let's pray.
God, I, I just love looking at David's life because I see so many similarities to my own. God, I know that I've been through seasons where I feel like, God, I'm trying to do everything right. I'm trying to be a good husband. I'm trying to be a good father. I'm trying to go to work every day and work hard. I'm trying to go to church. I'm trying to be involved. But God, it just seems like things aren't working. It seems like there's these difficulties in my path and I just don't understand it. I'm trying to do everything right, God. Why am I struggling? And God, David's life tells us this is a part of life. The Christian life, there is hardship. There is difficulty. There is struggle. God, you won't won't necessarily remove those from us. But God, what you do is you give us a Jonathan. You give us a friend who will be there with us, who will be loyal to us, who will stay by our side to support and to encourage. God, I thank you so much that you haven't left us alone through those hard times. God, I pray for those in here. God, I pray that they would seek the Jonathan right here. I know that they're struggling through a difficult season. A time where it's just hard and they don't understand it. So God, I pray that they would have the, the, the faith just to say, I need a Jonathan. I need a friend. I need a support. I need someone to walk alongside me. God, I pray that they would first see that through your son, Jesus. Because Jesus is the perfect embody of a friend. He's a perfect example of a friend. He is always faithful. He is always sacrificial. He is always faithful to that promise. He's always faithful to that protection. And God, secondly, I pray that we would, those would have the, the faith to say, church, church, I need you to walk alongside me, to be there for me, to encourage me through this season, to know that I'm not alone. I've got people who are praying for me, who are there to provide me encouragement, provide me support. God, I pray for those in here who may not be a David. Maybe they're a Jonathan. God, we need more Jonathans. God, so many times we look at church and we think, it's about me. I'm not getting what I want. I'm not getting what I need. God, I pray that you would help the Jonathans to realize We need you. You might be here because you have something to give. You can be a Jonathan to somebody who desperately needs it. God, I pray that you would help us to see that need, to help us to see that opportunity, to help us to see, God, the value that you put on our lives and the way that we need you to lean in right here, to walk alongside us, to share your wisdom, share your encouragement, share your support. Because God, the only way that we continue to see more people come into this life-saving relationship is if we're willing to walk alongside them, to encourage them, to support them, to know them, to be friends with them. God, I pray that you would help us to catch this vision. God, I pray for both the Jonathans as well as the Davids. That God, you would help us to see how to move forward. I pray that today the Davids would cry out to you and say, God, I need you as a friend. 
I need your support. I need your promise. I need your sacrifice. I need your protection. And God, I pray for the Jonathans in here. They'd realize they need to step up, step in, and help to continue to support the ministry, to be in relationship, to use their wisdom for the people around us. God, you are good. I'm so thankful we're not alone. I'm thankful that as the church, as the body of Christ, that we can rally around each other as brothers, as friends. God, we praise you for who you are and we ask this in your name. Amen.